up, guys? Welcome to the Seek Outside podcast. Uh, glad you guys are with us. We had a great time at BHA Rendezvous up in Missoula, Montana. Great time. If y'all didn't know, we released the new, the all-new, two-person ultralight hot tent uh, that also can be used as a solo hot tent because it's so freaking light. The Guardian, it's out now up on the website, so uh, definitely go check that out. Um, and place an order, man. Elk season's right around the corner. Summer backpacking, summer fishing trips, all that stuff is coming down the pipe. So uh, make sure you get that Guardian or at least check it out for us. All right. This is uh, the first installment of a podcast that we did at BHA. It's going to be with Kevin Sloan. Uh, he was a former founder of Sitka, uh, but now he has a uh, clothing company in the fishing realm called Squala. They make really awesome stuff. So go check them out as well. But hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Cool, yeah, yeah, we're rolling, so <clears throat> can just pick up wherever. Got the Seek Outside <clears throat> podcast going here. We got uh, Kevin Squared, we got Kevin Sloan, uh, and we got Kevin Tim, obviously. Um, but yeah, we're, we're talking here with Kevin Sloan. You want to give us a little backstory for those who, who don't know the legendary Kevin Sloan? <laughs> well, we're all here at BHA, yeah, uh, which is great, and uh reason we're here or at least i'm here is um is with squala which is a new fly fishing brand and uh this is actually our full-on debut it's the first time we've ever done anything and showed our product in the public yeah so kind of a fun couple days to introduce what we've been working on for the last two and a half years to everyone here at bha yeah so you guys just went live on the website like a few months ago right yeah so about 60 days we're still counting days Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> March March first. You're so. in that new thing. Where We're you're in still, that new thing where yeah. you're still checking out your traffic. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when we started Seek Outside. It'd be like we're getting hits from Ohio today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you could narrow down, and then you'd be like, oh, we sold something to Ohio. Yeah. Finally, must be that one guy. That one guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we are definitely still in that mode. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, well, tell us what you've done prior. Uh, just for um, for those who don't know, you were with Meat Eater and Sitka, correct? Yep. Yeah, I, I've I've spent a lot of my career in technical apparel. Uh, actually, started at Orvis um, in uh, 1996, a long time ago. Um, so in the mid 90s, and before that, I was a, a guide and outfitter. Um, so kind of started the first, you know, early part of my career as a guide outfitter. Managed a shop in Colorado, and and uh, and then spent some time in R and D with Orvis. Where uh, was the shop in Colorado? Um, it was outside of Vail. It's fly okay. fishing outwards outfitters okay. in Edwards, Colorado. Nice. Still, still there. It's had a few owners since, but it's still, still alive and kicking. Yeah. When were you there? I was there. Let's see. I was in Edwards from 1992 to 96. Oh, okay. You're gonna say because we used to fly fish up there all the time, but it would have been later, like 2000. I was like, oh, maybe I stopped in. Yeah. But no, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. 
You were you were just barely more than an imagination at that point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just a little seed. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Vale Valley. No, no, hardly anyone lived in the Vale Valley back then. It's a little oh, different yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely. My, my my grandparents had a house there for a while. They got it back in the early two thousands, and they worked at Vale Ski Resorts for a long time. And uh, so we'd always go up there in the winter to ski, obviously. But I think. Uh, my dad was always more interested in fly fishing, so mm. we'd end up doing that at the Eagle River. Yep, you know all the all the good spots, and it's pretty pretty dang hard to beat in terms of fly fishing around there. That's for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of good options around there. Um, you know, whether you go up on the Colorado or head down to the Roaring Fork, or there's uh, and then there's all the small stream stuff to go play with too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do have the Roaring Fork and mm-hmm. all that stuff up there. Yep. Out of out of uh, out of Glenwood and yeah all that, so. yeah so so Squala is it Squala or is do you say the A Squala or Squala uh, it's Squala Squala almost okay. sounds like a Q yeah and that's a that's a famous fly hatch that happens up here in Montana right it is kind of like a stonefly it's a yeah it's kind of the first hatch of the year okay um, stonefly we're literally sitting in kind of the epicenter quite frankly of it here really? in Missoula oh really yeah I mean the the if there is any river in Montana that was really known for it, it would be the Bitterroot, which really? is right oh, yeah. down, so right down here, pl- and then the Clark Fork right behind us here. So where are the best places to fish it? You're going to tell everyone? No. <laughs> yeah, give us your give us your spots. No. <laughs> no, but the, the it's not a secret that there's squalas on the Bitterroot. So yeah, um, but it's and it's it's really fun because it's it's one of the first hatches of the year. Mm-hmm. It's you know you're fishing big fluffy dry flies in March. Right, so especially living here in Montana, by the time March rolls around, you get a decent day in March, you're kind of antsy to go out. And, That's awesome. Um, and a lot of us have been fishing midges and all winter, and it's, it's nice to go out and throw big fluffy dry flies. Yep, yep. Um, and the fish, you know, when you get them, they, uh, they really get after it, because just like we've been fishing small flies, they've been eating small flies, right? So yeah. Yeah, when yeah, they've yeah. been eating midges all winter, and all of a sudden they see like a size eight fluffy stone fly floating over the head they plaster it yeah so is it kind of because we have you know the salmon fly hatch in in the gunnison uh, and around us in colorado um is it the type of thing where it's like you you kind of have to hit it right at the right spot or is it like a longer hatch no it's i think like most of the most of the big stone flies it can be frustrating yeah should have been here yesterday yeah should have been on the float seven miles above yeah um we were over here Oh, now it's probably like five, six weeks ago. And uh, we came over and fished it for two days. And the first day we put on, we literally caught our first fish on a squala on the boat ramp. We're like, oh, really? this is either a blessing or a curse, right? Getting <laughs> right, a fish yeah. like that. And uh, and we just, we smoked them on the first afternoon. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, that was great. Let's, uh, the, the hatch is probably working its way upriver. Let's go upriver. And we were kind of talking about how far up we wanted to go, and we definitely went too far. Yeah. And we, we went about 12 miles upriver, and for the first two-thirds of our float, we weren't in the bugs. Really? And when we got to the bottom, all of a sudden, our last last couple miles, we were on them. But yeah, but yeah I think they can, on all those big bugs, just like salmon flies, right, they, they don't have to eat a lot of them to get full. Oh, yeah. So, you get fish that are gorged, and sometimes you see bugs flying all over the place, and you can't find fish. And, yeah. Um, but it's it's an awesome way to start the season, you know, showing up in mid March, you know, drift boat days and dry flies. It kind of feels like it gives you a tease of summer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mid March is about when the gunnison starts to get uh, more interesting as well. Yeah. So yeah, start to see more people popping up, and BWOs are the are the 
big one right now over there at least um that's kind of what what we've been i don't know about. i thought according to our trip that we took oh it was yeah Castmasters Castmaster. that's a way. Way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so the fly fishing versus spinner that yeah that, that was a that was a ko on that one oh, <laughs> that was a, that was a complete skunking on my part mm. so what i did when i got back home was i tied up a bunch of essentially slump busters with a bunch of gold like flashaboo stuff <laughs> try to emulate a cast master <laughs> uh, go back out the next time and it was just all bwos everywhere so but um yeah funny stuff how that can work but um so for so with your company what what you know there's there's a ton of waiters out there there's a ton of fly fishing companies out there what are you guys doing differently we really wanted to kind of step back and and think about the end use, right? And what, what fly fishermen go through in their day, right? And think about like, you know, where people struggle, right? And, and you hear a couple things when you talk to anglers, one of which is like, they don't want to get in all the gear, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. It's not breathable, lack of mobility. And so when we, when we first started to think about Squall and what we wanted to do, we're like, we want to build gear that people want to wear. And I think in, in building really technical apparel, you're winning when people don't realize they have it on. And, you know, as we've had more and more people getting into Squala and some of our field testers, you know, the, I think one of the biggest compliments I can hear is like, I don't even, I didn't even know I had it on. And I was like, that is what I want to hear. I actually think that uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Mm -hmm. That uh, a lot of times, like, I don't want to get in rain pants. I don't mm -hmm. want to get in waders most mm -hmm. of the time. I have some nice Orvis waders, you know. I'm cool with them. I don't yeah. don't hate them. We'll have to work on that. But, but yeah. But uh, but I mean, it's like <laughs> it's like I don't really want to wear them around. Yeah. You know, I want to put them on when I need to, and that's it. Same with rain pants and mm -hmm. all that. So yep. rain jackets. Rain jackets are yeah. a big one for me. You know, especially if you have a couple couple of layers underneath, it's just like it's so constricting. Especially fly fishing or or spin fishing, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you need that mobility in your arms, and it, it does seem like your your stuff has some some nice flexibility, some nice stretch, and sounds yeah. like it comes from a lot of years of experience. Yeah, I mean that was really like the, the mobility was one of the key things we really thought about. Like when we thought about waders, again, like we want to have waders that you like you don't want to dread wearing them. You want to put them on. You want to be comfortable in them. And so, like we started from ground zero and didn't want to emulate anything that was in the market today. And I think people have noticed it like lightweight waders, highly breathable. Um, the way we build our patterns and our legs is completely different from how anyone else has built waders in the market today. And it was, it was really about mobility. Like how do we build waders that won't bind on you? Or like we were hearing from guides that they were sizing up multiple sizes because they were sitting in a boat all day and didn't want didn't want their waders to bind up on their legs. So there were guys that could have been wearing a large that were wearing like extra large talls, right? Because just so they were comfortable. And we're like, it, you know, our view is it doesn't need to be like that. We can really think about different ways to skin the cat here. Um, so good, whether it be there on waders or, you know, when you see our jackets, you won't see big billows pockets and, you know, big flaps. It's a very clean kind of design ethic um, of like, it's a, it's a bit minimalist. It's like, you don't need to have stuff hanging everywhere. Some of it's my DNA of like, I don't like anything kind of in front. Um, but we, it was kind of like, we build everything you need and nothing you don't was a lot of our thought process going into it. Well, it's funny when you really take something, I always kind of say when you take something and like really, really look and really, really examine that there's a lot of improvements oftentimes 
that are there that people haven't went and revisited. Like, mm-hmm. you could take the old Thermarest Z-Rest sleeping pad. You know, it was like the standard for the accordion closed cell forever. In the last five years, Nemo and XPad have done improved versions by having deeper cuts and using foam a little bit differently, combining a little open cell with it to be able to create a... It's still not a super comfortable pad, but it's way more comfortable than it was and warmer as well. And it's kind of the same when you take that focus and just really kind of look at something. You know, I kind of go back to a book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He's like a... uh, He's talking about college somewhere in Montana. I forget where it is. And the teacher, or he says to people, write about the hardware store across the road. And they're like all blank. And he says, like, write about the brick on the corner of the hardware store across the road. And just that forces forced them to open up their creativity and not be so constrained about, well, it's just a brick building. So That's, that's a good way to think about it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because clothing especially outerwear i mean it's there's a lot to be you know i feel like there's so much innovation that goes into it there's always something new i mean there's new new you know there's new belts out there there's new shoes every you know there's always something to be improved upon and you know fly fishing is is a very technical like your gear has to be very technical and so that there's a lot of room to expand there mm-hmm. so it's kind of cool what you guys got going on there yeah, we're excited with where where we've where we've gotten on our kind of freshman year so um, thus far. I will say I'm wearing one of your rain jackets right now. I'm impressed with the stretch of it. Um, I bought the rain jacket half hour ago, mm-hmm. something like that. <laughs> the reason I bought it is because it focused more on breathability than the high hydrostatic head. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the high, when you get those super high hydrostatic head fabrics, a lot of times it's like, they don't breathe until you really start churning. You got to really, yeah, you got to really have a lot of driving force to push it, push yeah, it through. And yeah. a lot of what we did was, um, from a thought process was pretty application specific, right? We didn't, we didn't want to build a do all product and I don't think Squala will be a brand for everyone, but it'll be, a, it'll be a brand for people who are looking to have a better experience on the water and, um, be more comfortable, stay dry, not sweating a lot a lot of mobility, right? We built, as you mentioned, we built stretch across the line and any place that we could do it practically, we did, whether it be in our puffy jackets to our, you know, three layer hard shell jackets. Um, we kind of started textile first too. And that's, that's been a lot of my design kind of mindset for a long time. Um, you know, every, most of the times that Kevin and I talk about packs, we talk about pack fabrics, right? Yeah, and exactly. And, uh, and I don't know that everyone thinks that way, but it's certainly with what we did with Squall out of the gate, it was textile first design. It was almost like we found some amazing textiles or worked with companies to create exactly what we wanted and then built the product around that. It's a good way to start from kind of from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So you were saying that you've kind of been working on this company for two years. Is that correct? Yeah, about two and a half. Okay. Now. So what was what was the what was the impetus to start the company? Uh, it's just, it's something I've been thinking about a lot longer than two and a half years. Yeah, right? um, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent a little over a decade at at, at Sitka um, in the hunting space, but never lost my passion for fly fishing. Right, the only thing that really got in the way of my passion for fly fishing is chasing elk with a bow. That would be the one thing that would make me put my fly rods away completely. But, um, you know, it's just something that, um, we've looked at for a long time, 
looked at the space and, and not seen the level of innovation that I thought we could see elsewhere, right? If you take a look at the hunting space between Sitka and what Kuyu's done and what's First Light's done, like those three brands really pushed each other, you know? Um, and we made better product because of it. Like we were constantly, constantly trying to stay in the forefront of innovation there, um, which was a full-time job for, for a lot of the team to do that. Um, and when we looked at this space, we weren't seeing that. We weren't seeing that like real drive for what's, what's next, what's new, and, and how do we make something that gives people a better experience and a better day on the water. Yeah. So what, where did you go to, to test these products out? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> the, has it been tested in all, all corners of the world? It has been, yeah. Our very first R&D trip was the Olympic Peninsula okay. in February which if you want to test technical gear, <laughs> hard to beat. And uh, we were there, uh, John Husco and I uh, were there with our very first Protos. Proto one on actually that jacket you were in, Kevin. Our, oh, really? our, our, um, did, did it hold up on February? It did. Okay. And uh, we had... had feel more confident. You gotta, no. We yeah, <laughs> <laughs> made it to market, so it definitely held, held up. But um, we got 12 inches of rain there in eight days. Oh man! That, so we got the full Olympic Peninsula experience. Yeah, was that the steelhead? Like yeah. looking for steelhead monsters. Yep. So yeah, and uh, you know, I feel like um, our gear held up great. It was actually, you know, initial prototypes, as you guys know from building stuff. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And we came back from that trip really excited about what we had done in our our, our first round of protos and build upon that and spent the next year and a half after that in cycles of R&D and testing and sending stuff to the Southern Hemisphere. A lot of our product was down in Chile um, and, uh, and then a lot here and some up in BC and Canada and some up into Alaska, S sending it places where you break stuff, you know? Yeah. No yeah. Kamchatka? No Kamchatka. <laughs> kind of hard to get there right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've heard some stories about the Russian mob and, <laughs> and steel f and fishing over there. Uh, that's funny. So, so I kind of want to switch gears here a little bit. Um, so, what's your what's your favorite type of fishing to do? I mean, you're in you're in the mecca of what people think of fly fishing. Obviously, river runs through it. Kind of spoiled <laughs> Montana fly fishing for years. But yeah, what's your favorite type to do? You know, it's funny. <laughs> My mom asked me this question about hunting years ago because she she doesn't hunt at all. So she you know was trying to figure out what got me so excited about that. And I would tell her it depends when you ask me that question. Yeah. If you ask me what I, she likes to ask me, would you rather go hunting or fishing? And I was like, well, if you ask me that on September 15th, I'm going to tell you, I want to be in the woods with my bow. Yeah. But for the other 11 months out of the year, um, you know, I, my take on fishing is really, um, as much about the exploration and finding something new mm -hmm. than it is about anything else. Right. Like been at this for a long time. It's not, it's less about catching fish though. I certainly get stoked if I see a, you know, 24 inch Brown wants to run a fly down. Um, but as much as anything, I like going someplace new and the experience and the exploration of that. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think when I think back about like my favorite trips, you know, I do, I do live in trout fishing heaven, right? Like within two hours of my house, I have the Madison, I have the Gallatin, I have the Yellowstone, you know, um, and then endless other stuff. And, um, and I love that. And I love the ability that I can go out for, you know whatever well, Wednesday night we left at 5:30 and went and ran down to the Yellowstone and did a float and I love yeah. the ability to go do that yeah but what I really love is going someplace new that's a totally new exploration something unknown my yeah my favorite time I've had fishing in the last few years as far as trout 
was with Hal Herring, Little Creek and the scapegoat, fly fishing. We probably hiked six miles or something, caught uh, cutthroats, rainbows, and brookies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did it with a Tenkara rod, and I caught a 16-inch bow out of a little pool that probably is not as big as the back of this tent from here back. Mm-hmm. It looked like a little clawfoot bathtub pool. I cast in there, and all of a sudden it's like, and on a Tenkara, yeah. you know, a 16-inch trout can be a real deal. Yeah. So... Do you I, do any Tenkara fishing? I don't. No. But I do like, I love small stream stuff, uh, which I do quite a bit, actually. It's um, a lot of times in the summer for me now, I kind of put the drift boat away in July and August and let everyone else enjoy those rivers. And um, and I go fish small stream stuff. And I love taking three flies in my pocket and a one weight. And I, I do that quite a bit, actually. Um, like after work or, or, or quick hit at lunch. Again, nice thing about where we live is I can mm-hmm. go, I can go fish for 45 minutes on a, pretty much world-class trout stream yeah um but i i do love that simplicity of you take a rod i actually even for a period of time i got a little creek by my house where i would tie a fly on at the house on my one weight and take nothing and just hope i didn't you know hope you don't snag that, up that, that <laughs> it, like, it makes you concentrate on your fishing but it yeah. also allows you to enjoy everything around you right yeah. is not having all that gear and a big vest and changing stuff it allows you to say you know what i'm gonna have a great time i'm gonna try to make fish eat this fly yeah. i'm gonna enjoy everything around me Right, not see people, which is for me is a positive. But mm-hmm. um, so I love that, and then I love like you know, whatever's new. Like a couple of years ago, my son and I went to the Northwest Territories on a pike fishing trip, which is something I'd never done, like a focused week long pike fishing trip, which was an absolute blast. But one of the coolest parts of that trip was the unexpected, in that we were up there in July. It was snowing. It was like a high of thirty five, um, and because it was so cold the lake trout came back into the shallows mm. and we caught lake trout over 40 pounds holy in holy. six feet of water. Really? And I was like, didn't know that even existed. <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget that. But that whole adventure was amazing, you know? And, yeah. and like, I look forward to, for me, I'd love to go back there. It was a killer place, but I'd rather go somewhere else and try to have that same like surprise experience. Right, right, right. Of yeah. Like, wow, I didn't even know this was a thing, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's such a, wonderful thing when you like i this past year have really gotten into fly tying and there's such a wonderful thing going to a new spot and like dialing it in to where you find the fly that it's Mm -hmm. like you know that where that magic moment happens when you're like just locked in but it gets tough before that because you know on that fishing trip we did to the Gunnison, I was just... The fly was the cast master. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I was watching Owen just bringing them in left and right. And so he I'd, was catching chunkers too, 18, yeah. 20 plus inch yeah. left and right. And yeah. he, he would like, he would be fishing down here, I'd be fishing over here, and... Uh, and You'd walk right into the spot I, he did, try to get the same magic. He'd walk to where I was and he'd catch a fish. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just found myself tying flies on left and right and I couldn't find it. And it, it's kind of frustrating, but you know when you when you finally, it's like you were saying, like when you like really dial it in, it just it's so much more rewarding, you know, just to. It, and I don't know, do you tie flies at all? I do. Yeah, yeah. It, that's a good good way to spend a, a Wednesday night with a glass of whiskey for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I went through a period of time actually where I before kids <laughs> where I tied everything I was like part of fly fishing for me mm-hmm. I tied everything I fished with for years oh, yeah. um, 
yeah, that just don't have the time these days to do that. But I tie the stuff that I think is really fun. I tie all my saltwater stuff. I love to saltwater fly fish and those are fun things to tie. And I tie, you know, my big trout streamers because kind of like saltwater stuff and fun to tie. But, well, yeah, I talked to you a few weeks ago when you were down in Florida, Yeah, you know, hitting on some big fish down there. Chasing snook so, around. Yeah. Chasing yeah. snook, huh? Yeah. Nice. What part of Florida were you in? We were in southwest Florida, Pine okay. Island. Captiva, nice. Sanibel, that area. Fishing mangroves and stuff. Yeah, really killer snook fishery. Nice. I grew up fishing down there. This was uh, this was my 41st year fishing down there. Wow. Oh, really? I think I've missed two years. One was for a hurricane and one in the first year of COVID. Wow. And that's it. Oh, man. Um, and, uh, yeah, the snook fishery down there is doing well, right? That's a that's kind of the foundation where Captains for Clean Waters came out of. And, mm-hmm. and uh you know, there's been a lot of challenges there with the ecosystem and what's going on and the explosion of growth in Florida. And, you know, I, I feel great whenever we go down there and actually get and, and see a healthy fishery because yeah. it's part of me. It's almost shocking that it can still be there. And then on top of that, all the water challenges down there, um, you know, as a positive, the, <laughs> the problem is not fixed down there. Mm-hmm. So we definitely can't take our foot off the gas on what's going on in that part of Florida from a water issue what, but, what is the but water the, issue but the fishery is actually right now yeah uh has recovered it was it had there was a red tide five years ago mm. so go back to the foundation of the problem it's um water flows out of lake okeechobee mm-hmm. and down the Clusahatchee river and between basically fort myers and and okeechobee there's a lot of ag and a lot specifically a lot of sugar um which creates an enormous amount of runoff of pesticides and but the real problem um, down there is all the fertilizers that end up in the rivers. Mm-hmm. So those rivers flow out into the Gulf, right, right in Fort Myers and, uh, and Sanibel. And at certain times it hits that warm water and there's an algae bloom, but which those occur naturally. But what happens when you have a huge river pumping enormous amounts of fertilizer in, you create a perfect storm, mm. right? And it can hit 90 degree salt water and it doesn't need enough to explode. And so five years ago, there was an enormous red tide. It went all the way up to Charlotte Harbor um, and it sat there for like months and it it killed darn near everything. Really? Um, and so that fishery, I remember the first year we were down after that, um, sea trout, speckled trout down there are everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's lots of really, really great grass flats down there, which historically is a healthy sign. I yeah. mean, to the level, you can go out and catch 30 or 40 of them on a fly if you want. Mm-hmm. And I remember we went a week and we caught two in, a, in, in areas I'd been fishing for years where wow. you could go out on an afternoon tide and catch 20 on a fly. Really? And we caught like two for the whole week. And like the redfish were gone, the snook were gone. There was a couple little fish around. There was no mullet, like the foundation. Yeah. You know, with, if all the bait fish die and all the crabs die and all the shrimp die, everything else is in trouble, well, that, right? Yeah. That gets into, that's actually a great lead in. You're wearing a wild steel head coalition. Yeah. And I know <laughs> you were the president of Sitka, who had a big conservation involvement, and then Meat Eater, yep. which had a uh, big conservation. How is uh, Squala getting involved in conservation? Yeah, this was something when we. When we first sat down and thought about what we wanted our brand to be, this was obviously top and center in my mind. It's been something that's been important to me for a long time. And um, and one of the things I really wanted Squala to do was to own things, right? And, you know, one of the things I see, awareness to conservation is great. 
but I like I see a lot of things. I kind of call it hashtag conservation, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's yeah, yeah, I'm conservation. But like, what do you really do? And one of the things that was really important to me with Squala was how do we actually own something, and how do we do things where we can say we did that, like we made a difference and we changed something. And it was interesting in our conversations with the crew here at BHA and Josh Mills, and we were talking about how Squala about two months ago about how Squala could get involved with BHA and one of the things that we came to with them was we want to do something together. And so we said a part of what we wanted to donate and contribute to BHA was toward an actual project that BHA and Squala owned and adopted together. Mm. Um, and so that was super important for us. So as we grow, what we want to do is find things near and dear to us and the things that we do and, right. um, and really, really own them, be like the keeper yeah, you know the gatekeeper of something, so that we know it can be driven through, and we can make a difference. Yeah, right. Well, that's I mean, super important nowadays. Just um, seems like every day you're hearing something with water, especially. There's always For something, sure. some issue with, uh, you know, or lack of water, or lack of yeah. water. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's that's a, a big one. Um, but especially, it sounds like down in Florida, they got they got some big issues because you just see videos of waste being dumped into the ocean and stuff like mm-hmm. that so be awesome if you guys could get in on that and i'm i'm sure I'm sure you will yeah so. well, i think we'll we'll start it just like we've done with the with the business Eric. we started in montana and we've focused here in the northern rockies and i think our first conservation projects will be in and around our space here mm-hmm. um yeah. and then from there we'll grow um you, know, you brought up wild steelhead Co- coalition i'm a lifelong steelheader and uh it was funny. We were thinking about making a T-shirt of, of like it's hard to be a steelheader. It is a tough time right now to yeah. be a steelheader, right? The Olympic Peninsula closed this year completely. BC closed down this year. Um, you know, the it comes back to the ocean, right? And like no one really has a pulse on exactly what's going on with the steelhead populations, which is super scary. Yeah. Um, you know, Florida actually. Uh, <laughs> the issue in Florida, it is clear and scientifically proven what the problem is mm-hmm. now fixing it, it's a big huge thing to do but at least it's identified the pacific anadromous fish thing is is uh, a bit more of a mystery you know it's like the health of the ocean is 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 in question yeah. really because they're going out but they're not coming back you know really? three years later they're not coming back and in, in, in really shocking numbers so hopefully we see i've heard i don't know how true this is but i've heard the ocean like the people that who who are studying this are saying like these larger dead cells and they're seeing more foundational life, right? It all starts with plankton, basically, right? And um, so hopefully we see some some rebound coming here. But it's you know it's been like a ten year kind of continual kick every yeah. year. Um, yeah, 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 it gets a little hear. worse every mm-hmm. year. Yeah. So. What what does steelhead do? Like, so are they kind of because same with salmon? Like I. I know they go back into the ocean. Do people ever catch steelhead like out in the ocean or is that a thing? They do, but people don't target them. I think generally speaking, um, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what goes on there. I do know they travel huge ranges too when they they? hit the ocean. It's not like, you know, they come off the coast of the Oregon and they hang out off the coast of Oregon. They, they travel all over the, all over the Pacific before they come back again. So, It's fascinating. Really? Are they just they eating like big fish and stuff in there, or who knows? Yeah, I don't know. There, I think one of the challenges was with a few of these uh, things, especially the anadromous fish, is there's not a lot of data and science about what 
happens through every point in their life. Yeah. Right. Similar um, stuff goes on in Florida with tarpon. It's like, it's, I, I find this amazing, but like scientifically, they don't really know like where, what tarpon do and really? where they go and where they're spawning all the time. Same thing with bonefish. It's, it's, really? Yeah, it's why the it's you know a lot of what the Bonefish Tarpon Trust focuses on, but mm. it's it's amazing actually how little that they've been able to understand about what these guys do. Yeah. So know. so tarpon are kind of the, a similar thing to salmon where they kind of run and that's when you catch them. Is, is that they kind migrate? Of what you're saying? Yeah, they yeah. migrate up and down the coast. Okay. You know, they kind of disappear in the winter and then they show in the Keys and then. They show up the west coast of Florida, and they go all the way up to the Panhandle and over to Louisiana. And I think they think those are largely the same fish. Really, really. Like I was, I was in Louisiana in July, um, and we were on some islands offshore, the Chandelars, and we were into tarpon out there. Really. That they, and they don't show up until like mid July, wow, early August. And I think those are some of the some. I think in some cases the same fish that showed up in in Florida here a month ago. That's crazy. That is nuts. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> so, so with Squala, how, where can people find out more? Like, if people want to check out the clothing. So we have a handful of dealers. Um, when we launched, we wanted to have four four partners out of the gate. Um, so they're all here in the Northern Rockies and around us. So headhunters uh, up in Craig, Montana, on the Missouri. Um, we've got the guys at Big Sky Anglers in West Yellowstone. We have. Um, Worldcast down in Victor, Idaho, um, and then we're working on a on a few more. Um, oh. But it's that or directly on our website. Okay, so squalafishing.com. Direct consumer or yep. basically specialty fly shops. Yeah. There's going to be no Bass Pro, no. Uh, I would say highly unlikely. <laughs> no Cabela's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not unless Bass Pro comes in with a fat paycheck and just buys the whole thing at an astronomical price <laughs> that you can't resist. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's an interesting thing has been this trend toward direct-to-consumer companies. And one of the things that's really interesting about fly fishing is, like, there's a culture and a community around fly shop. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't exist in every space, in every retail space anymore. But it, it may exist in fly fishing as, as strongly as any any channel is there is that there is this community around fly shops. And we recognize that. And we think it's an important part of uh, of the equation in the space. Well, a lot of times it's where you get your intel yep. yeah. and stuff for, for your new location and stuff like that mm-hmm. as well. So totally see that. Is there, is it all men specific at the moment or is there a women's line or specifically out of the gate? And you know, we caught, came out with 12 products for the first okay. year. So they're all, um, all men's at this point. Um, but yeah, over time we, we certainly plan to expand into the women's market as we grow. Yeah. How many people do you have on staff right now working at Squala? So there's a core of about five or six of us. Yep. And then um, in this space, a lot of the, like, the really good designers and stuff are all independent. So they're not necessarily Squala employees, but this might spend a lot of their time working on Squala products. Yeah, okay. Um, and a lot of this is the team I've worked with at other brands. Right? Yeah, I've yeah, got, nice. a, got a handful of, of people from my, my time at Sitka that are whether they be in sourcing or design or factory management or even on our marketing side, um, our, uh, our folks I've worked with in my past. Yeah, kind of I, know, fun. I, I know who one of them is, and, you know, I think that they're pretty talented. Well, um, I mean, the jacket looks pretty freaking slick, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, just does. from look, and obviously Kevin likes it so far for the first 30 minutes. Yeah, so. no, I think, <laughs> uh, I'm the direct-to-consumer. I was talking to Ryan from your team. 
It's getting really confusing. I know. Ryan, two Kevins, team, two Ryan. We should have had Ryan here. We could have confused everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I actually think that you get better customer support in a direct consumer a lot of times because yeah. no one knows the product as well as you do. Mm-hmm. And if they provide feedback to you, you may not you may not implement it, but it you have that data point where if mm, they correct. provide it to someone at Cabela's, you never see that unless they answer a survey. Who knows if you get if it's articulated in a way that makes sense in a survey. Yep. So I think ultimately while the consumer likes to be able to go to their dicks or whatever and see what whatever real easy I think that ultimately they'll get a better product on the direct-to-consumer model. I 100% agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I would say if someone asked me to describe what our what we do as a brand and how we reach the market, I'd say we're omni-channel. We want to be where our consumers want to be. But I would say we do that with a very strong direct-to-consumer focus. Um, and for that reason, right? I think there's there's the customer feedback cycle, and there's also just knowing who your customers are. And in a wholesale scenario, you don't really know who your customers are, right? It goes to, you know, Fred's Fly Shop, and out it goes. You don't really know who bought it, um, and you also don't build a relationship with them. And I think that real value, and you know, we are definitely aggressive on the direct to consumer side. Um, is knowing who your customers are and them knowing who you are, right? Two-way street. Yeah, that's one of the things I actually find great about BHA Mm -hmm. is I get to interface here with people that really are pretty much our our people. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get to hear their concerns or what they're looking or thinking and things like that. And so that's all important feedback. I mean, like I don't take everything, you know, but I mean, it's great to have that data point. Sure, yeah. Definitely. You know, sometimes, like, I remember when I got an email from someone who was telling me how they would improve our Cimarron, and um, he had these things that I was like, you know, we've sold thousands of that tent, <laughs> and you're the first person with that specific, and here's a downside of that specific thing you would like to see. And he got a little attitudinal. He was, yeah. like, he was like, well, fine, if you don't want my help. And I was like, it's not, you know, I mean, I've heard feedback from thousands of people, you know, yeah. that, that's never been mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and it's not without a cost downside. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, well, it's the fun of the, you know, the interesting thing about product development, the danger of product development is you build things for you. And uh, we're always very cognizant of that, right? You got to build people things for the end. You can't build projects that are like, this is exactly what I want necessarily. Yeah. Um, I think it's always a blend of consumer input. And I think really good product development people are in, ahead of the customer, right? Generally, customers don't tell you like what's going to be next. But you can take pieces of feedback to get you there. That is funny because I had, I used to be in the IT world. I used to be a... I was at a company, I was a senior security engineer. And I worked with marketing more than I would like. And marketing would always be sending out these things, trying to understand what customers wanted, right? And I always had the complaint of, you're finding out what they want. What they want is they're going to point to this product over here, and then you're going to go formulate it, tell our development team, we're going to be three years behind the curve. We need to jump that curve and be leading the pack instead of consistently three years behind sure you know well that's why you need those people well 
first off, that's why you need to take the product on those trips up to the Olympic mm. Peninsula. But also you need those people that are just going to be ruthless, you know, testing it and point out every little thing that could be wrong. And then you just kind of dial it in from there. I, that's one thing I kind of learned at being at Seek Outside, working with Owen. He's, he's, uh, he's definitely got an eye for that kind of stuff. But I remember I first started working here. I was like, oh, yeah, everything's freaking great. You know, it's perfect. But, but that's really not what you want. You want to hear what's wrong with it and, you know, and why it's wrong yeah. and, and what could be a better solution um, to, to make the, the best product out there for, for what you need. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you don't but, always want smoke blowing up your ass. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're it's alive. not helpful, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So good. Good product testers are kind of a rare thing. They actually are, and there's a couple people that we have come into that I really trust as far as their feedback, and they're able to articulate it well. Yeah. Um, That's the key. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, well, Kevin, I got one last question for you here. If you had to, so say you're going on that trip um, to the stream near your house, and you're tying on one fly. But that fly can be the only fly that you use for the whole year. What's it going to be? Oh. I'll, I'll give you three, actually. Three flies. Ooh. Well, I can fish one thing. I love fishing big streamers. Yeah. Just uh, like the problem The problem with that is you shouldn't fish big streamers all the time. Today, we should, you know, right now it's, what is it? It's 45 and it feels like it's about to start raining. Today's the day to go throw the big stuff around. I love that because it's, it's visual and you get to see the fish chase and you get to see the fly and I love that. So it might be something like a yellow sex dungeon because it's mm-hmm. super fun to fish. Yeah. Um, I think if it was a something else, <laughs> if I could be somewhere that they'd eat chubbies all year long, I would do that. Yeah. Big fluffy dry flies. Yeah. You, it could be a chubby or whatever else, but... Um, that's kind of where I've gotten in my fishing these days. I'm like, I want to, I want to see him smash a big streamer, or I want to watch me to dry fly, and um, that's kind of where I am. Okay, <laughs> nice. Only taking two out of the three. I, I think I, I like could it. land with two out of the three. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Well, Kevin, you got anything no. else for Kevin? <laughs> oh no, man, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah thanks for having appreciate me. Appreciate you. Yeah. And look forward to to seeing what Kevin thinks in the jacket and. I'll try uh, to provide you good articulated feedback there if go. I have yeah. anything. <laughs> Instead of I'm sure I'll hear it from you. <laughs> I know I need some new waders. My neoprene waders that I've had for about 10 years are, are uh, basically a wetsuit, so I'm probably going to be going to be buying some of them waders when they are they are they out yet waders are are, waders are out yeah the carbon waders is out we have uh one more waiter to launch that we'll launch later this year but okay um our ultralight kind of uh convertible waiter is out right now sweet well everybody go check squall out and uh thanks for joining us kevin thanks for the time yep